How many people have heard the phrase, what you don't know can't hurt you, right? Everybody, right? How stupid is that, <laughs> right? Is that not the dumbest thing that you have ever heard before in your life? Of course what you don't know can hurt you. I assure you that if I don't know a circuit breaker has been turned off and I stick a screwdriver into a light socket, that I will be hurt. What I don't know can hurt me. But what I don't know can also do some other things. I grew up out in the country. I was not privileged to grow up in the uh, suburban environment in which many of you all grew up. I grew up out in the sticks, out in the woods. I'm a country hick. And every single Saturday morning of uh, my life growing up, it seemed in the fall and winter, we would cut wood. We had a wood-burning insert that uh, heated our house, and so my dad and I would go out and cut wood. He was a responsible adult, so he'd use a chainsaw, and my job was to split the wood. And the way that my dad taught me to split wood is kind of how he taught me to do most things. He let me try it on my own and figure out how not to do it. I was feeling pretty horsey, my preteen self, and I said, give me that maul, give me that wedge, and I'll go after it. And after I had worked myself into exhaustion, Dad taught me a trick I have never forgotten. He taught me how to look for which way the grain runs in the wood. Because if you try to cut or if you try to split wood against the grain, you're just going to wear yourself out. What you don't know at times can be exhausting. I was 26 years old when, I had, uh, when we had our first child, Caleb. And uh, I knew exactly Jack and Diddley about babies. Uh, when he was born, and I knew even less about being a parent. And looking down in his little face and realizing that I was his father filled me with stark terror. He was expecting me to know what to do, and I didn't have any idea what to do. In that case, what I didn't know terrified me. If I were to use three words, to describe Jesus followers in America in 2020, it would be the words hurt, exhausted, and terrified. We are hurt because the standing that we have had in the world in which we have lived, the majority opinion that we have always held in our country, is rapidly going away, and we're in the minority on most opinions. We're exhausted because we're having a difficult time tracking the pace of change as it happens seemingly by the second in the world in which we live, and we are terrified at where it might lead. And the reason I submit to you that we are hurt, exhausted, and terrified is because of what we don't know, or more appropriately, we're hurt exhausted and terrified because of who we have forgotten. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Today we close out the letter of 1 John and we'll spend the next few weeks in 2 John and 3 John and then the series that we started in January will be over. And I want you to stop and think with me for a moment what we didn't know when we started this sermon series. When I stood in front of you the first Sunday in January and said we're getting ready to spend time in the letters of John, I thought naively that the most difficult task ahead of us was helping our congregation navigate the partisanship that would exist in an election year in a way that honored Christ. But what I didn't know is that just a few months later, we would be in a pandemic that would keep us from being able to meet in person 
for three months. What I didn't know is that almost as soon as we opened up, our country would erupt in a racial divide. There are a whole lot of things that I didn't know. There is so much that we don't know, but we don't have to be held hostage by it if we do know the right things, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hope you found 1 John chapter 5. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Here we go. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. All right, gang, you don't need a seminary education to be able to deduce that we are dealing with a passage of Scripture that is framed around threes here, all framed around the phrase, We know there are three we knows, and this information that is being given to us are the things that we need to hang on to if we are going to be released from the hurt, the exhaustion, and the fear that many of us are experiencing. Here's the first thing that we need to know. We need to know God is our strength. God is our strength. Let's take apart verse 18 together. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, we know, because we have been going through 1 John, that John is not saying literally that the person who is a follower of Jesus never sins. That doesn't jive with what we see in the, the letter of John, it's First uh, John, it's not what jives with what we see in the rest of the New Testament. We know that when we are followers of Jesus, there will come times where we will rebel against his authority in our lives and choose our own way over his way. And John has told us that when those moments happen, we have the opportunity to confess our sins and we receive from Christ the experience of that forgiveness that he won for us on the cross. So we know he is not saying we don't sin. What he is saying here is that the person who is a follower of Jesus doesn't live a life that is characterized by habitual, willful sin. Instead, the person who is a follower of Jesus Christ will live a life whose life is characterized by a, a, an alignment with the moral example of Jesus, that we will seek to live our lives according to his standards, that we will seek to live his life in a way that is in harmony with the life that we see him live in Scripture. So John is saying that the person that follows Jesus is someone who does not keep on sinning. But then he reminds us of how that ability to live according to the moral example of Jesus takes place. Second part of verse 18, he says, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. 
Now, that's a little oddly worded, and we might have to ask ourselves, well, who is he who is born of God? And there are a few options available to us. Number one, he who is born of God could be another one of you, another follower of Jesus that I am in community with because I attend church with you, another follower of Jesus, another church member whose, whose accountability in my life is able to encourage me from sinning. That's one option. Another option could be that it's you. As you look yourself in the mirror as someone who is a follower of Jesus, you by your self-discipline as someone who is born of God can, by an act of your will, keep yourself from living a life of willful and habitual sin. But once again, that doesn't jive with the rest of the book. That doesn't jive with the rest of the New Testament. No less than Paul himself said he found himself sinning when he didn't want to. So there's another option that's the best fit, and you can figure out what that option is if you do a little eighth grade grammar there and capitalize the word he. He, Jesus, who was born of God, protects him. It is the strength of Jesus Christ that allows us to be able to have victory over sin in our lives because He, Jesus Christ, in this battle of will between temptation to sin and a desire to be obedient is the one who gives us victory and the evil one does not touch us. We can defeat sin in our lives because of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't require an act of our will. We can't just sit back and say, okay, well, Jesus, I guess you were napping that time because I sinned. It does require an act of will, but when we have victory, it's because of his strength and not our own. When I was dating Julie and still trying to uh, convince her that I was a soft, caring, sensitive soul, which she no longer believes, uh, we went out to see a movie because she wanted to see this movie. She's an animal person. I'm an animal person, but she's really kind of a freak animal person called The Bears in the late 1980s. Anybody ever seen the movie The Bear? A few old people in here like me have seen The Bear. The Bear, best I can remember, doesn't have any dialogue. It's just about, well, it's just about a bear. And, and this bear cub gets separated early on in the movie from its mom. And the rest of the movie is about this little bear cub going through all of these different experiences trying to find its mom. And at the climactic scene, this little bear cub is cornered by a cougar, a mountain lion. And this mountain lion is intent on devouring this little bear. And the little bear is scampering and trying his best to get away. And it's very tense. And the bear falls into this raging river. And, and it, it doesn't drown. And the, the cougar keeps tracking it along the bank. And finally, the bear is able to, to cr- climb out onto a rock. But he's cornered. And this, this cougar is about ready to leap. And so he does the only thing this little bear knows how to do. He lets out a little bear roar. And so here it comes, and he lets it out. But when it happens in the movie, it's thunderous, and it's huge. It's like the little bear cub's voice had changed. Then the camera pans back, and Mama's found the little bear. The little bear is not seeing that it's his mom behind him roaring, and that runs the cougar off. The cougar disappears and hightails it. This is the way it is with us when we have victory over sin in our lives. It's not because of our strength. It's not because of our discipline. We have victory over sin in our lives because Jesus is our strength. God is our strength, and he is the one that protects us from disobedience. You say, okay, well, how does not knowing that hurt me? 
Well, not knowing that can hurt you because it can just make you an insufferable legalist. I mean, we all know these people that are just more holy and more devout than everybody else, and they're very proud of their own self-righteousness, and nobody wants to be around them, so it can hurt you in that way. But I think the way it hurts far more of us is that we just give up when we lose sight of this. We just think, well, I'm the person who can't control their mouth, or I'm the person who has this addiction, or or I'm the person who has this habit. And we just give up. We resign ourselves to it. We think, well, I'll just never overcome it. You only think that because you've, you've not known something and it's hurting you. Jesus Christ, when he saved you, gave you in himself the capacity to defeat sin in your life and in my life. And we need to live in the strength and the power of knowing that God is our strength. You say, well, tell me how to do that. Hang on. We'll get there in a little bit. But right now, remember, know that God is our strength. Next, John tells us that we need to know that God is our source. God is our source. This is a really easy verse. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And another way of thinking about this is we know we are from God and that, uh, that everything else is from the evil one. The world here is a word that John uses to talk about that system that exists in the world in which we live that is opposed to the rule and the reign of God. So we know that there are people who are, are celebrating and trying to live in the reign of God. Those people are from God. And then there are, are people who are, are living in rebellion against the reign of God, and those people are from the evil one. There are two different sources. We are, who are followers of Jesus, sourced from God. Those who are not uh, sourced from God are being sourced by the evil one, and we must not forget that. Here's why we must not forget that. Far too many of us wring our hands and, and, and furrow our brow and worry when we experience opposition, and we shouldn't. Because what John is telling us here is that, of course, you're going to experience opposition. Let me tell you what the normal Christian life is. The normal Christian life is you will be opposed by everything that opposes Jesus. And everything opposes Jesus that's not redeemed by him. Do you get me? Do you hear what I'm saying? We should not be surprised by this. And if we, if we are surprised by it, if we constantly think, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. I wonder what's going to happen here. I wonder what's going to be the outcome of this particular thing. Then you're going to lose something, and that thing that you're going to lose is joy. Here's, here's how we can know that. Go back to your left just a little bit to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Next spring and summer... We are going to spend uh, our time in the book of 1 Peter. It is a tremendous book. I'm looking forward to sharing uh, in that book with you. But today I want us to look at verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Here's what it says. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What is he saying? He's saying it's normal. I mean, you are from God. And that which is opposed to God is from the devil. Of course, of course you're going to experience trial. 
Of, of course you're going to experience conflict. Of course. Don't be surprised. But then he goes on to say, but rejoice. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's just said something that ought to cause the, the jaw of a good many American Christians to hit the ground. He's just said that suffering can be a good thing. What? Are you kidding? Of course we know this, don't we? There are entire theological systems that exist in the Western world that are built around the idea that God doesn't want us to suffer. But what we're seeing here is, is that of course you're going to suffer. Of course you're going to experience trial. Because you have a source that is not from everybody else's source. And when you experience that conflict, guess what? You can have joy because it allows you to have a taste of the experience that Christ had in redeeming you from your sin and will cause you to anticipate with great joy his return when all things are made new. We need to know that God is our strength so we don't have to live constantly the victims of sin. We need to know that God is our source so that we can anticipate being opposed. So how do we live in the strength of knowing that God is our source? We'll get there in just a little bit, but there's one other thing that I want us to see. This is how John ends the book. He lets us know that we need to know that God, God is our salvation. God is our salvation. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came to give us understanding. So did he come just to teach us to know stuff? No. John keeps going. God has come. The Son of God has come and given us understanding. Understanding so that we may know him who is true. This is a reference back to Jesus, so that we may know Jesus. Jesus is the one who is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He's come to give us the understanding that that is who he is. He goes on, and then to clarify, he says, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. So it's more than just this transaction of knowledge. There is a dynamic that is created where we are in him and he is in us and our lives become vehicles for Christ's life to be lived out in our own life. And then he makes this powerful statement. He, Jesus, is the true God. And then he says, and eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is the true God. God is eternal life. Now, here's what we do. We tend to think that eternal life is a message that is given, or at the very least, is the byproduct of a message that we are given. If I were to ask you to say to me um, what, what the gospel is in, in as simple a terms possible, in fact, if I said to you, give me the gospel in one word, many of you would say grace, mercy, forgiveness, whatever. You know what you ought to say? The gospel is God. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is our salvation. We don't get eternal life. We get Jesus and he lives forever. 
we are saved by and through Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. And that would be a pretty good way to end the book, right? You know, Jesus is salvation. Boom, mic drop, walk away. Or quill drop, walk away. But then he says this in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? I mean, where did that come from? I mean, scholars, as a matter of fact, who get paid to scholarize, have spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out where verse 21 comes from. I mean, it just seems like it sticks out there like a sore thumb. Where did that come from? There are people that speculate that perhaps John got uh, distracted before he was able to complete the letter. And so he was starting a new section and thought, you know, I'm going to take a break here and never got back to it. There are some people that speculate that for, for some reason we've lost another section of 1 John, that there's some lost part of 1 John. But if you understand the book, you understand exactly what he's doing. How does he start the book? He starts the book by saying, here's who's writing this letter to you. Someone who saw Jesus with his own eye. Someone who heard Jesus with his own ears. Someone who touched Jesus with his own hands. And this Jesus that I have seen, heard, and touched is salvation. He's the one true Jesus. And the reason I'm having to tell you this, the rest of the book goes, is because some of you have started to believe in a corrupted Jesus. You've had false teachers come in who have explained to you that Jesus really isn't the Jesus that John saw and heard and touched. He's another kind of Jesus. He's not the God that John says he is. And so they've begun to create Jesuses in their own image. What have they started to create? They've started to create Jesus-looking idols. And so what John's doing here to close the book, he's saying, I've told you who he is. I've told you who the one true Jesus is, the one who gives eternal life. So quit chasing after the lesser. Because God is salvation. Here's what I've noted happening in the time that I've been in vocational ministry. I started in vocational ministry In 1987, here's what I've started noting that is taking place. We have corrupted the gospel. We've corrupted Jesus in two different ways. Number one, we've tried to make him relevant. You know, Jesus, honestly, think about the world in which you live. Jesus can kind of be embarrassing, right? I mean... We, we are affirming that a man who was crucified and then stuck in a hole for three days walked out of that hole. And then, if you want to get really weird, we are saying that that Jesus will come again in the sky on a horse. I mean, Jesus can kind of be embarrassing. So what we have to do is to try to take the rough edges off Jesus, and so we try to show how relevant he is. I mean... So, you know, if you just follow the teachings of Scripture, disconnect the good guy Jesus from it and just follow the teachings of Scripture, your life's going to be what you want it to be. It'll be the American dream. We can teach you from the Bible how to balance your checkbook, how to be a better parent, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife. And so this is what we've started doing. And we've started to create a Jesus without hard edges, a Jesus without the miraculous, a Jesus without the supernatural. Cultural relevance. 
Then on the other side, what we've tried to do is we've tried to say, well, you know, Jesus isn't enough to sustain us in this world. We need political power. And so what we have to do is we have to kind of give Jesus a little juice here, and we have to marshal ourselves politically, and we have to get very organized politically, because if we're going to ever have a hope in our culture, we've got to have power. So we've tried to become politically relevant because we don't believe Jesus is enough. Those two idols are getting knocked over every day in the world in which we live. Every single day. And the reason that many of us live in constant fear is because we have followed an idol, a lesser Jesus than the one true Jesus. What you don't know can hurt you, it can exhaust you, it can terrify you. So John closes out this first letter by saying you need to know and live in the power of the fact that God is your strength. You need to know and you need to live in the power of the fact that God is your source. And then big finish, you need to know and live in the power of the fact that God is your salvation. You say, okay, Derek, I've been asking all through this deal, how can I live in the day-to-day knowledge that God is my strength, my source, and my salvation? At Blue Valley, we talk about Jesus followers rather than Christians because what we are called to do is to be followers of Jesus. That's what being a Christian is. And we say that a follower of Jesus is going to exercise five habits, the habit of surrender, sustain, sacrifice, shine, and share. You can find those on our website. There's a declaration statement that goes along with the word sustain, though. And that is, I will will sustain my walk with Jesus by disciplining myself to experience God's transforming power. So what we are doing when we talk about discipleship is not saying we need to give you more information. When we talk about discipleship, what we are saying to you is we need to help you connect on the deep personal root level with Jesus day to day. That's what discipleship is. And you discipline yourself to do that. So how do you discipline yourself to do that? We talk here at Blue Valley a lot. We'll talk about it more and more over the years. The idea of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are those habits of abstinence, not doing something, and engagements, doing something that help connect us more deeply with Christ. These have been practiced by Jesus followers who were getting it and doing it for thousands of years now. What are the disciplines of abstinence? Silence, not talking. Fasting, not eating. So we'll move past that one. Baptists don't like that. Solitude, separating yourself from people for the purpose of connecting with God. What are disciplines of engagement? Reading the Bible, worshiping, praying. So through the practice of these habits, these disciplines, we are able to connect at the root level with God and not lose sight of the fact that God is our strength, our source, and our salvation. And you can use these in very prescriptive kinds of ways. And so that's what I want to do as we close here today. I want to give you an exercise to accomplish during the month of August. Let's see if people are willing to do that. By way of abstinence, a, a discipline of, in, of, 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 of not doing something, a discipline of abstinence, 
I want you to identify that in your life which feeds your hurt and your exhaustion and your fear and walk away from it for a month. I want you to do that. And some of you know what that is right off the bat. You know what it was for me? I did this on vacation. You know what it was for me? Just Twitter. Twitter. Now, I'm, I'm not active on Twitter. I learned several years ago that the world doesn't need my opinion on everything. You need my opinion on everything. <laughs> but, but the world at large doesn't need my opinion on everything. So I never tweet. I never do anything like that or reconfigured everything. I'm deeply hidden. You can't find me. And if you did, I got nothing to say. But I use that to keep up with things. I use it to keep up with news. And boy, that's really a calming thing to ingest news all the time, right? I use that to keep up with what's going on in denominational circles and Baptist life. And you don't know about that right now, but that thing's a tire fire and just a mess, and, and I was just finding myself just constantly worked up and getting my, my, my uh, hurt and, and, and my exhaustion and my fear ramped up, and so I, you know what I did on vacation? I took, I took Twitter off my phone. I just took it off my phone, and I decided, you know what? If I think I need to know something, I'll seek it out watching the evening news or reading the paper in the morning, but I'm not going to constantly be at the mercy of all of this other stuff all the time. You say, well, Derek, are you just sticking your head in the sand? Of course not. But let me ask you something. Who here is shocked by this statement? There's currently a pandemic. Nobody. Who here is shocked by the statement there's going to be election in a few months? Nobody. What else do you need to know? Seriously, but what we do is we just take it in and we take it in, we take it in, we take it in, and all of a sudden we are just fearful and we're angry and most of us are about to snap. Worked up completely. Identify what that thing is that is feeding your hurt, your exhaustion, and your fear and set it aside for a month. And then engage, add to your life to replace that God's word in this way. I want to encourage you to memorize Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. You're saying, 17 verses, good night. Right now, you could sing a song from high school, all right? You know all the words, okay? You could do it. I want you to join me in memorizing 17 verses, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17. You say, why are you doing that? Because what that passage of Scripture says, set your mind on things above and not on things below. Set your mind on Jesus. It goes on to say, Take off all this garbage, put on Jesus, experience his peace, experience his love, experience his mercy. That's why we're doing it. And I want you to, to see if over the next month, I want you to see if you start to notice that you're less hurt by being left behind in culture and you're less exhausted trying to keep up with it all, and you're less fearful of where it all might be going because you have remembered and know that God is your strength, God is your source, and God is your salvation. And you can know that, every single one of you today, if you surrender your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I get that when I speak to people, 
uh, every week that there are some who have never done that, who have never come to a point in their life where they have said, I have been religious and I've been good and I've been moral, but I have never been a follower of Jesus and surrendered myself to him. And you want to know how to do that. And you do that by confessing your sin, saying, I'm a sinner, I've screwed it up. I've screwed it up, and I can't fix it myself, but I'm going to embrace the forgiveness that Jesus won for me on the cross, and by an act of my will, I am turning from doing my own thing, and I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what for the rest of my life. That's what it means to surrender your life to Jesus, and that's what all of us need to do today, to live a life that's different than what many of us are experiencing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.